When I first started Googling about today's topic, one thing became very clear. The content of social media is very important, but so are the devices we use to connect with one another, or nowadays sometimes with fictional others. The fact that I was Googling, of course, put me inside the subject we're addressing, sort of, to see what's been written about it recently. I didn't go to the library or consult a venerable news digest like Facts on File. I used the powerful little computer in my pocket, on my phone, or perhaps I used the laptop uh, as well. But in any case, I used one of the many screens in my house. The ubiquitous screen on iPhones, notebooks, computers, uh, and the old television, which is now a new HD television, is a window on the world. And for a generation that's grown up with all those screens as a given, it is the window on the world. A few years ago, the Kaiser Family Foundation found that kids age 8 to 18 uh, spent about, on average, seven hours a day on TV, music, or audio, a computer, video game, movies. Their exposure to print media, books, newspaper, magazines, was about a half an hour a day. So while we hear about social media usage in this hour, we're also going to hear about the messages imparted by the media that our children and grandchildren are growing up with. We have three panelists who have thought and written very wisely on this subject. Our first panelist is Brian Merchant, who is technology columnist for the Los Angeles Times. Uh, he has written books about technology, past and present. His book, The One Device, The Secret History of the iPhone, explores the origins of that device, which turn out to be a lot more complex than a sudden Steve Jobs brainwave. Uh, Brian Merchant also wrote about the rebellion against technology by the original Luddites uh, during Britain's Industrial Revolution in his book, Blood in the Machine. Brian Merchant, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Cheers. And uh, let's start off with a big picture here. Screens connecting us to images, sounds, and language, or relationships between young people uh, and uh, those devices, the social life of social media. If you were to try to describe in short, uh, what's different for young people growing up now in this media environment from what their parents or grandparents knew? What would you say? How would you describe that, that environment? Yeah, I think one way that you can think about it is sort of as, uh, as an exponential acceleration of the amount or the volume of media that, uh, that children and kids are now growing up around, you know, they're, I'm you know, old enough to remember when the concern was over television, right? You were, mm -hmm. We were being bombarded by television. Kids were watching too much TV. They were uh, spending up to six to eight hours a, a day in front of the TV. Um, the, the, the difference now is that that screen time has not only decreased, uh, it, but it has, uh, it, it, it has increased, as we know, but it has also become... Um, much more uh, sort of tactile and involving, and it it demands uh, more uh, more attention, and it splinters our attention greater. We're bombarded by more kinds of media. Um, it, it's it's a it's a different beast now um, than 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 it was twenty years ago, with a whole different set of of problems that come with it. I wouldn't say the problem necessarily mm -hmm. has been exponential, but the nature of sort of our experience with media is uh, is that we are facing an exponential more amount of it, uh, facing screens of various kinds, interacting with it, touching it, mm -hmm. seeing, you know, subscribing, tapping, you know, TikToking. Uh, 
In incidentally, uh, you, you've observed that the um, relationship between very young children and the iPhone, which is kind of a good fit, uh, isn't accidental, actually. That's that's intentional. Yeah, you know, I was researching the book, uh, The One Device, and, and and I was talking to some of the developers of the the UX, um, the, user, the user interface divine, the, U, the UI, rather. Um, and they were really sort of striving to make this thing as immediately appealing as possible. So when, you know, you touched it, it it you know adhered to steve jobs adage which is it just works right you didn't need an, an instruction manual you didn't need to uh you know take out a, a pamphlet to read to learn how to use it you would get your device you take it out of the box and it would be intuitively uh you know usable um and they these designers really took it to extremes. So I, I'm talking to some of the the folks who were designing those very first iPhone prototypes, and they were doing things like when you're touching the screen and you know looking through a photo or a graphic, and you know it has a little rubber rubber banding effect where it kind of bounces, mm -hmm. kind of makes it a little more satisfying to touch. Or you flip through a picture and it kind of whooshes by, and it goes, oh, that's nice. And your brain is registering all of these little changes. Um, and the way that they would gauge how successful it was, was by uh, putting it in front of their very young at the time children. And one of the designers told me, if if I put it in front of my two-year-old and they could <laughs> use it, then I knew it was successful. So it, we had, this literally was sort of baked in from the very beginning um, into the genesis of the devices themselves. As as you've pointed out, uh, some of the hours that have gone over to various new kinds of screen time uh, used to be spent watching uh, not such meritorious television. Uh, I can remember in the 1950s when there was a move to uh, stamp out comic books because they were rotting the brains of American uh, youth. And uh, there is this wonderful musical, The Music Man, which plays on this whole idea that it's pool that is destroying American youth. So, what, uh, so I, I want you to try to to try to look at, at what's happening today, imagined from a distance, is it is it that different? Is is the notion that that uh, young children are spending their time in at least unproductive ways? Is 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 there something new and different about that? Yeah, there's absolutely something new and different. And again, I think I hinted at, at this earlier. It, it's an interactivity that these companies have realized. Um, you know, uh, they can profit off of uh, by sort of uh, encouraging uh, more and more engagement and different kinds of engagement. So it's um, that sort of what began as a design choice uh, and sort of pointed to the simplicity and the ease of use of a tool has been adopted subsequently by social media companies, um, by by uh, app developers and game gaming companies who make these really addictive games and experiences that sort of appeal to the lizard brain of us and children in in a very different way. So it's not just like they're passively consuming content, which has its own host of problems with mm. whether it's a comic, but at least you're, you know, comic books and encouragery. I mean, these days, if my son is reading a, a comic book at night, you know, I'm yeah, that's great. You know, he's learning to read. <laughs> he's, he's, he's developing a skill set. Um, TV is still remains a problem. You're passively consuming information. Now they're getting their hooks 
in us at a very, very young age are teaching us to sort of scan for the next thing to sort of plunk away to kind of want to to buy something. And that's, you know, entering into the equation to, you know, to tap for an extra reward or an extra sort of outfit or an extra uh, loot box that you can get. And these incentives are kind of entering the picture uh, quite, quite early now. And so that's in the mix now, this linkage of experience and commerce and addiction to digital experience uh, that that is yeah. for profit is really what the cocktail is now. And it's a different beast than it was 20 years ago. What uh, I, I gather, and, and this is in talking with you and our other panelists and reading that uh, the subject of, of, of AI is so overwhelming right now to the, the field that you write about in, in technology that... Uh, uh, we, if we don't talk about AI, we're not talking about uh, about connectivity anymore. How much has that changed things? I we're I think we're just beginning to see the initial stages of how this is going to change things. Um, we're I think AI stands to exacerbate some of these tendencies. Um, we've already seen uh, some of the apps that are popular with kids like Snapchat and Facebook introduce, you know, AI chatbots and tools and things that uh, that that are sort of designed for young people and, you know, all people, but uh, young people are especially susceptible to them um, to use. So if social media is already addicting, already encouraging us to scroll through and to click and try to get that little dopamine hit when we uh, interact with stuff. And AI is going to be sort of built expressly to do that. There's not even going to be a human on the other end at, in some of these experiences where, mm -hmm. you know, kids will be, you know, and this is not the future. I've talked to people who are, who spend some time, you know, chatting with, uh, with, with an AI on Snapchat. Um, and sort of that can be its own sort of, uh, addicting or interesting. And I, that's not to categorically say it's bad, but it is a potential new source of, you know, of, of screen addiction. And there's a lot of things that are, uh, you know, that we need to watch very carefully about this developing trend. Well, Brian Merchant, thank you and stay with us because in another 15 minutes or 20 minutes, we'll have our discussion period. That's uh, Brian Merchant of the Los Angeles Times. Our next panelist is Dr. Jean Twangi. Uh, she is a research psychologist, uh, a professor at San Diego State University. Uh, and she's very concerned about what all of those hours of screen time are doing to today's children. Uh, she's the author of the book, Generations, uh, The Real Differences Between Gen Z, Millennials, Gen X, Boomers, and Silence, and What They Mean for America's Future. And Dr. Twangy, thank you very much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Uh, let's start with some, uh, well, what you've written about, negative consequences of teenagers uh, hitting the internet at bedtime, hardly, hardly a rarity. You say there's some real physical and psychological damage being done there. Yeah, I mean, this is one of the biggest concerns that right around the time that smartphones became very common and social media became ubiquitous, we started to see a big increase in the number of teens who were not getting enough sleep. And there's tons of studies on this. Sure enough, pretty much every any way you look at it, whether it's Correlational, say people who spend a lot more time online are getting less sleep. And then there's all the sleep lab studies that just having that phone in the bedroom overnight, even if it's on do not disturb, people do not sleep as long or as well as those who get that phone out of the bedroom. So when I give talks on this research and even 
just on generational differences. This is the question people always have. Well, what do we do? What is the mm -hmm. biggest thing that we can do to help manage technology? And that's always what I say, get your phone out of your bedroom overnight. Then they say, but I have to have my phone in my bedroom overnight because it's my alarm clock. And well, buy an alarm clock. <laughs> Go low tech with something. Uh, yes, for people who are watching and and who are aware of a of a child who seems to be a, a connected nonstop to the phone, and the phone is with uh, with him or her in the bedroom at night. Uh, how much how much sleep should that child, say a you know a fifteen year old child, be getting? And and um, how how much is the is the phone or the device the screen device maybe a game console? How much is it taking away? Well, 15-year-olds need about nine hours of sleep a night. So the range is eight to 10. That means they need more sleep than full-grown adults do, not less, so kind of contrary to popular belief. And in the national survey data that I work with, about half of teens are sleeping seven or fewer hours a night. So that's half with a pretty significant amount of sleep deprivation. And there's always been, you know, sleep deprivation among teens, but it's now considerably higher than it was before we had these devices in our hands. And when you study, or when others, for that matter, study uh, what the impact of a great deal of involvement in, uh, in screens and social media is, uh, uh, are they overwhelmingly negative and are they different for girls than they are for boys? Well, I mean, we do know that the more time a teen spends using social media, the more likely it is that they will be depressed. So in one of the big data sets, for example, those who were using social media heavily were two to three times as likely to fit a clinical cutoff for depression than those who didn't use social media or used it only lightly. And that link is stronger for girls than for boys. So in that study, for example, for the girls, it was three times as many who were depressed at the high levels. And for boys, it was quote, only twice as many. And there's another factor too, in some similar data, that link between depression and unhappiness and social media use is stronger among the youngest teens. So this is why I and many other experts are starting to advocate for the minimum age for social media to be raised to 16. It's now 13 and it's also not verified. You just check a box or lie about your birthday. Yeah. So that's another step is age verification. Yes, age verification is a is a, an idea that, that, uh, that, that comes up when we talk about the problem of, of uh, children and, and, and the net. Uh, is it, um, once we go beyond just self-reporting, clicking a box saying, yeah, I'm an adult, I'm, I'm over 18, uh, are there actually ways of checking that a 13-year-old child is 13 years old and that that's, uh, that, that's not his, uh, his mother who's uh, signing in right now? Well, you know, there are so many third-party vendors that can verify age. They have their own trade association now. So I'm not the person to tell you the technical aspects of how that can be done, but clearly it can be done. Um, and as to whether, you know, the, the parent is signing in, well, at the moment, you don't need parental permission at all to open mm -hmm. a social media account. So even if it was mom signing in, that would still be an improvement. There's a phrase we used to hear a lot about, um, about the gap, a gap between the, 
middle class, mostly white household with Wi-Fi connectivity and computers in the house. And on the other side of the gap, uh, the poor, largely minority households that are lacking uh, those advantages, the digital divide. If I understand the most recent numbers, the divide has sort of flipped, uh, that uh, the wired middle class college educated family is more likely to impose limits on screen time, more likely to share your alarm about uh, about these things. And it's poor minority kids who end up spending uh, more time on their screens. Yeah, that's exactly it. The, the, their, the divide is now completely flipped. Uh, and that, that has shown up across many different surveys that it's actually the kids who are the most vulnerable, who have the fewest advantages, who spend the most time on social media and screens in general now. And it's because virtually everybody has a smartphone. It's now pretty much mandatory. I think the Pew Research Center found among teens, 95% had a smartphone, something like that. So it's it's pretty much everybody now. And the families with more resources and more time are better able to enforce those types of limits, are more aware of some of the research out there, have more concerns around these things. And then the families without as many resources, so single parents or those with low income, often just don't have the time or the bandwidth or the resources to be able to restrict use, or they don't have the knowledge. Um, that's true across social classes, frankly, but it that is the divide now. It's opposite of what it used to be. Earlier, I recited that list of uh, of generations in the title of your book. Uh, and as a as a member of the post-war baby boom, I know that my fellow boomers and I and the older group, the members of the silent generation, I think we've already had whatever impact on America's future that uh, we're going to have uh, for the most part. So thinking about kids who are young right now, I mean, uh, how are they likely to shape up? I mean, what, 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 what's in our future uh, if, if the world has changed this much in terms of, of, uh, of, of media and connectivity? Yeah, so um, we know much more about Gen Z, so those born roughly 1995 to 2012. We don't know as much about the next generation, those who are, say, still elementary school children and younger, those born 2013 and later. Um, some people call them alphas. I call them polars after melting polar ice caps and political polarization. That's the generation, though, that has not only not known a world without smartphones, they've never known a world without iPads and tablets either, and streaming services being the default instead of traditional television. The little we do know there is their parents say that they're not as they're not exercising, running around outside as much compared to even just 10 years ago. And then they probably, as a result, childhood obesity rates are at all-time highs. Mm -hmm. For Gen Z, we know more where there's been enormous increases in depression and anxiety and self-harm and even suicide among teens and young adults. On the good news side, this is a generation where they've had the world opened up to them through the mm -hmm. internet, and perhaps as a result, they are very open about people from different backgrounds and identities and genders and are very comfortable with ideas, um, you know, around those um, identities. 
Well, Professor Twaggy, thank you, and stick with us because in a few minutes we'll have our our uh, discussion session. But first, we're going to turn to our third panelist, uh, who has joined us before on Global Connections, Sherry Turkle. Uh, is Professor of the Social Studies of Science and Technology in MIT's program in Science, Technology, and Society. Uh, she's also a licensed clinical psychologist uh, and an author. Her books include The Empathy Diaries, a memoir. Uh, Sherry Turkle, good to talk with you once again. Lovely to be here. Uh, as I understand it, your, your view of the problem that we're describing is that people born in the 21st century, or perhaps in the waning years of the, tw the 20th century, might as well be in a new age of, of, of human history. Uh, their, their notion of communication is so radically different than what preceded them. And it's not a very encouraging uh, age that you foresee. Do I have that about right? Well, I, uh, that's, that's the dark side, but um, I would say that what I, how I would put it is that there's been an assault on values of human communication and human understanding that social media was part of that has made, um, uh, that has really challenged what we used to think of as great virtues about human communication. So I think, for example, uh, in my own work, in my own research, uh, of an assault on empathy and what empathy means. And whether because the idea that first we talk to each other through machines, and now, as Brian, said, we now talk directly to programs as though they were people mm. and will accept a kind of pretend empathy as empathy itself, as good enough to be empathy. Um, this is what I'm researching now. I'm studying chatbots and all these artificial generative AI programs that, that don't just say, I understand you, but say, I love you, I care about you. And the generation that's growing up talking to chatbots really is taking this pretend empathy as empathy enough. And I guess I consider that a, uh, you know, a dramatic shift mm -hmm. in, in really how people think about what is the essence of hum human communication and what is it that we give to each other as human beings? Because after all, the programs that are pretending to understand you when you turn away from them, they don't care if you are going to make dinner or commit suicide. I mean, they mm -hmm. have no knowledge or, or care about who you are, and they have no arc of human life that they are working from when they talk to you in personal terms. And young people, um, in a way, don't have the, um, seem to be missing all the chips um, that would cause them to say, whoa, whoa, you know, uh, this is a problem. Because from the earliest years, they've been using social media, which I consider a kind of gateway drug to, to pretend empathy, to artificial intimacy. Well, if, if, if young people, uh, particularly as more and more and more are using AI yeah. you know, programs, they're seeking this, what you call this artificial intimacy, uh, and if they succeed in finding it, uh, finding a, uh, um, a a place online where there's no friction, no disagreement, no no challenge, uh, one risk is, of course, that they'll find it uh, and be completely astonished by a world in which people disagree and in which there's friction. 
Well, I mean, that's it's very important to to, to keep for all of us to try to keep our language precise because you cannot find artificial intimacy online. What you're finding is something else in which you will always be validated, in which there will not be friction, Mm -hmm. in which you will always be yes, yes and yes. I mean, what social media made promises that you will always be heard day or night there's a conversation for you. Um, you can always be with your own kind. That's another promise that social media made. Mm-hmm. And artificial intimacy extends that promise to you will always be validated. You can live in a world where you're always okay. You will always be validated. And I'm finding that these relationships do not prepare you for relationships with people. And if we start to measure what empathy is among people by the standard of what a machine can give, yeah. well, it, people not only won't live up, but people will will seem as wanting. Whereas, in fact, what the machine is giving is is kind of in, in human terms nothing at all. Yes. So I'm very concerned. I mean, I think this is a. Um, this is something that needs to be, you know, everybody's so talked about because everybody's so concerned, um, as Brian was saying, about, you know, what the what the machines can do. And I'm concerned about what they're doing to us, you know, right. uh, way before they have general intelligence or have achieved their next miracle of, uh, of wowness. You, you've said that young people today are missing a capacity for solitude. Yes, uh, what what do you mean by that? Well, you know, uh, because of the constant inundation uh, with with data, by because of the fact that you just need to pick up your phone and have you, you can have everything, you can switch, you can be on five screens at once. Um, uh, people no longer need to cultivate. I'm okay alone, me which is really the first step in reciprocity in human relationships, because being alone, being okay with being alone means that you can turn to another person and say, this is who I am. Who are you? Mm-hmm. But if you, if you don't have that capacity for solitude, you turn to another person and you say, fill me up, tell me who I am. There isn't that, capacity for kind of the give and take uh, of what real human reciprocity and mutuality is about. And, and you know, I really think that that, um, you know, all of the things that Jean has so dramatically pointed to in her in her wonderful research, you know, they they can come back to this lack of capacity for solitude, this lack of capacity for reciprocity, this lack of capacity for the vulnerability of being a person. So many kids who I've interviewed will say to me some version of, I love to text. Why would I ever have a conversation? I'll tell you what's wrong with a conversation. It takes place in real time and you can't control what the other person is going to say. And this notion that you can be a human being and somehow have control over your social space. And even more now, as we spend more social time with avatars and chatbots, that 
that give us complete control um, and are there to yes us um, is a very dangerous thing. It's not a good development. In talking with uh, Gene Twaggy, I, I mentioned the the flipping of the of the digital divide. Yes, um, I've seen that there's also research on uh, screen use in China uh, and yes. in India. This is this is a a, a pretty broad. I, I don't know if, if anything is a truly global universal phenomenon, but it certainly this is not limited to a to just a small sector of people in the United States of America or Europe. No, it isn't. And if anything, I think in the United States. There are, there's such a there's growing to be such a large research community of people who were saying, look at the downside. You know, the you know, the valence is still with the big corporations and what they're pushing. But I think increasingly here you have the advantage of people having lived with social media for a while and now being and, and seeing the harms and seeing that industry had no interest in protecting us from the known harms. And so there's starting to be a bit of a resistance movement, which you're really not seeing in other parts of the world. So if anything, I'm mm-hmm. I'm sort of, I, I don't want to say I'm optimistic because right. uh, that wouldn't be true, but I'm I'm hopeful that in this country, we can start to get a kind of, it's almost like a model of mothers against drunk drivers, because you have more parents who were saying, you know, this wasn't good for me as I was growing up. Mm-hmm. I can see that now. And I really want to say I'm more attentive to what uh, the harms might be for my children. Um, but, you know, in that digital, you know, in that flipping of the digital divide, you know, it, it's worse than, you know, it, it's complicated by the fact that, you um, that the more upscale you go, the more likely that the content and the programs include some things that are of, you know, that are educationally exciting, that are of interest, um, and not just kind of, you know, auto, you know, YouTube getting you more and more into a black hole of, of danger. You know, and there's also, I, mean, I just want to end, I'm, I'm, this is a little bit of a rant, but, you know, these, this, 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 the tricks of social media, which uh, Brian was referring to, which is basically to show you content that makes you mad and then mm-hmm. keep you with your own kind. I mean, that's the algorithm to keep you hooked. That is very bad for democracy, you know. Because you're learning, you're not learning to talk to people who disagree with you. You're not learning, you're learning to live in this friction-free world where you're put among people of your own kind in order to keep you addicted to your feed. And if we need for our communities, for our politics, for our country, more capacity to talk across divides. And it's very concerning that um, that social media um, still with so many kids in its grip, uh, really don't, you know, it teaches us exactly what we don't need to know. <laughs> well, Sherry Turkle, thank you very much. Stay with us because I'm going to invite back uh, Gene Twangy and uh, Brian Merchant, all, all three of our panelists. And uh, and first, I'd like to hear what, uh, you know, what you've, what you've heard from your fellow panelists, what you make of it. Uh, and uh, I'm going to start with Gene Twaggy because you you talked about the um, the openness that uh, that a lot of kids come away from from their social media exposure and their it's it's a, it's a different emphasis from what Cherry Turkle was just saying. 
Yeah, I mean, there's certainly um, some, arguably some upsides, but I think that social media is not set up to really emphasize those upsides or encourage those upsides or get them to happen because those algorithms um, are designed to keep people on for as long as possible and coming back as often as possible to maximize what they call engagement. It's mm-hmm. a little euphemism for teenagers spending, you know, five or more hours a day on social media, which according to Gallup, by the way, they do on average, the average teen spends five hours a day on social media, if you include YouTube and, and TikTok. And, that's and, and probably media. spends other time through school on a, on an iPad as well. And in, in, in some right. Yeah. So the devices in school, that is a whole other can of worms. Um, not to mention that many schools allow children and teens to bring their smartphones to school and to use them during the school day, even during class. Um, so individual teachers have to police this and then they're used uh, at lunch. So lunchrooms at schools that allow phones are eerily quiet because the kids are on their phones instead of talking to each other. You know, the the the, the interesting question for us now is, is what to do about all this. Um, mm-hmm. And you know, I, I have a, I've got two young sons. They're, they're, they're quite, they're not quite in the danger zone um, yet. There's five and seven. So it's, uh, I know, yeah, I, I guess there's some, some of their friends that have, that have phones already, but not, not many. It's not really, he's not asking to get a phone or anything. Um, and in fact, I, there are useful things that, that that can be done and and taught in context and i found this interesting so i i, I gave my my oldest i got a i got a laptop i got a free laptop laptops are so are so cheap now right these are these <laughs> chromebooks um and it's you know it's set with the with, with the parental controls on it and what does he like to do right now before he's been inculcated into sort of the social media ecosystem and in, into all this stuff he likes to write emails to his grandma that's great. He's learning how to spell. He's typing out. He likes to use the paint program and he, and he creates what he calls masterpieces on them. So these are both very creative and, and productive sort of uses of this technology. I it's, it's been as a tech columnist and as a tech writer seeing sort of the uses of, of tech and he will go on the internet kind of, you know, when I'm around and he's, but he's looking up sea creatures or, you know, whatever, you know, and it's all this useful stuff. So we're seeing kind of a pre inculcation into the socially mediated world uh, into which all of these companies and, and and tech giants and startups are so easy, so eager to sort of uh, convert uh, his technical proclivities into into tiny uh, you know profit streams. Um, so so the the question is is again how we go about this. I think it was interesting what Sherry was talking about with these pockets of resistance. Um, I immediately thought of you know my last book was about the the, the Luddites and. Mm-hmm. A big misconception about the Luddites, of course, is that they want to smash technology. They don't get it. They just want to throw it all in the river. Uh, That said, what they really did want to do is find smart ways to use it, smart ways to think about it, ways that didn't exploit, you know, their countrymen, ways that wouldn't get their jobs lost. It was ultimately about sort of finding ways 
to democratically use technology in a community. They, they, they wanted to get rid of machinery that was hurtful to commonality. Quote. And and in that vein, there's this Luddite club. That's what I was thinking of when Sherry was talking. That came, that was that you know the New York Times did a story about them, and they're using sort of the the popular sort of mischaracterized vernacular to to talk about you know they shun their phones, but it still I think fits in this Luddite tradition. They're rejecting this use of technology that they see as as harmful, as exploitative. Right. Uh, they're, you know, they're, they're use, they use dumb phones, quote unquote, the clamshell phones, these tools that are, uh, uh, are coming up. So we have to figure out how, you know, we can assert usages of technology that are, uh, you know, that are not so, so harmful. I think mm -hmm. a lot of that's going to come from hitting at big tech and, you know, it's not going to come from just like, you know, media literacy programs and sort of little nibbling around the edges. Um, it's going to, I think it's going to be the result of, uh, of regular regulation and some real fights against um, the way this stuff's currently being used. I have a question for <clears throat> really for all of you, but I want to start by putting it to Sherry Turkle first, which is uh, an, an, an event that's, that, uh, it has coincided with 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 some of this uh, was the the covid um, the covid pandemic uh, which um uh, in, imposed isolation on a young generation uh, growing up uh, withdrew them yeah. from normal childhood society uh school suddenly was something that you you uh, you attended through a, a, a an ipad not by actually being with other students and i and i it, it, i wondered when i when i thought about that is it is is it possible uh, that we have a generation of kids coming up who were really impacted tremendously by that and are growing up rather differently as a result, but that younger groups coming up may revert to you know we're, we're social creatures after all and they may uh, they may be less isolated or uh, less in search of uh, uh, or satisfied with an artificial intimacy that. What we're living through is still the, the 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 wave of COVID passing through us and that experience. Well, I think that's such a good question. Um, but there it has two parts. Mm -hmm. It has um what did COVID do to all of us mm -hmm. that has not just teenagers, but everybody um that has led to, I would say, an acceleration and a deepening to crisis levels of an epidemic of loneliness. And this mm -hmm. is something that the Surgeon General has commented on. This is something that as you do research in the field, um, you see, uh, you, you know, you think you're gonna be interviewing about social media and people just start, start telling you about how desperately lonely they are and how it's better to talk to a chat bot than to nobody. And, uh, you know, these are not people sort of you know, you're, you're, I've been taken aback by the admission of, of loneliness, of not having friendship groups, of people, mm -hmm. uh, of people feeling isolated and sort of uh, in, 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 in demographics where I wouldn't have expected it because their work, you know, they relied on going to work. And now that work group has been dissolved. Sometimes it's been reformed, but in different locations, they've kind of lost their bearings. Um so I think that turning to screens as a way to assuage this mm -hmm. loneliness is something that just didn't hit 
the children who were left out of school. Mm-hmm. It hit the mothers who could no longer sit in the playgrounds and the friends and the workers who no longer went to work. It kind of hit a lot of people. And I think we're still seeing, uh, we're seeing um, in the artificial intimacy movement that I'm studying and the mm-hmm. willingness to talk to a loving, caring chatbot uh, to take advice from that entity, we're seeing the 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 effects of really having no one else to talk to. So I, 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 I think that yes, that's ahead, very you. important. But specifically on young people, um, I think that it took a in that generation that literally didn't go to school for two two and a half. I mean, you know, was taken out of school. I think you're seeing a, a much deeper cut uh, and a loss of capacity for conversation and a loss of capacity for the vulnerabilities of that you need that for the for the willingness to be vulnerable um that you need to have interpersonal mm-hmm. yes uh, young parents have themselves grown up online and are on social media at this point has research been done on distracted parenting meaning parents who are heavily engaging with their phones when caring for their infants and toddlers well, my research shows uh, that, that that children go to their parents and say, get off your phone. I want your attention. <laughs> I'll, defer, I'll defer to my other. My, yes. my favorite line is stop Googling. I want to talk to you. Gene, <laughs> Gene uh, Twangy. Yeah, I've, I've, I've heard the same. I've, I've heard from pediatricians that four and five year olds will um, all independently come up with the idea of calling the smartphone the dumb phone because they hate it and they hate it because their parents are so distracted by it. Um, about the pandemic, I think we have to kind of put that in context of the of the changes that came before that, that um, teens were in dress rehearsal before the pandemic, before it even happened, because they were already spending so much time online, so much time on social media, and they also started to spend less time with each other face to face. So we saw those declines starting around 2000 with the internet showing up, but they didn't really become huge or meaningful until about 2011, 2012, in the age of the smartphone and ubiquitous social media. And then they just plummeted. You know, teens hanging out with each other, driving around in cars, going to malls, um, just any kind of social interaction that was face-to-face just accelerated downward. And that was well before the pandemic. So those changes mm-hmm. started about eight years before. And perhaps as a result, teen depression doubling, that happened before the pandemic. Between 2011 and 2019, it had already doubled. And then it continued going up during the pandemic, but at about the same pace that it had before. Mm-hmm. So when people say, oh, there's, yes, this adolescent mental health crisis must have been because of the pandemic, it really doesn't look like that's the case. I mean, it certainly didn't help, but- that was not the original cause, and it maybe made it a little bit worse, but it seems like that lack of being with each other in person and that social interaction moving online had a lot more to do with it. And uh, Brian, any thoughts on on uh, COVID and the subject we're talking about? Yeah, I would say, I, I, building. I think that that tracks with, with with me with what what Gene said that I think that we were already you know on this trajectory already but what it did do was it gave a lot of the companies who are building the infrastructure to sort of make the case uh to solicit more investment you know you saw Eric Schmidt 
uh, going around asking for investment um, in New York City and sort of trying, you know, saying the future is going to be all online and trying to sort of accelerate this shift to to more. You know, you saw the the boom of uh, of Zoom, which wasn't necessarily, uh, you know, totally durable. Um, but you saw a lot of these infrastructures, a lot of these uh, the the architecture uh, around the uh, around these new online experiences, new ish of the last whatever 10, 15 years, sort of you know make the case that that they're integral and and sort of uh, entrenching their contracts with um, you know we're talking about schools, we're talking about governments, uh, you know with, with with some of those institutions and and with some of those bodies, you know the the commercial social media companies that is just actively seeking users i think that was already on track to sort of capture youth attention no matter what but you know again as a parent i have a front row seat to you know all of these uh these new platforms and and tech companies that have sort of uh you know wedged their way in into the into the experience into the into the public experience and part of that is the tablet part of that's the software that comes loaded on all these uh, uh those, those tablets and and devices so i do think that it helped entrench um you know kind of behind the scenes uh from like from a corporate standpoint uh some of the, some of these systems um and it may, will make them harder to extricate should we even you know decide to do that as a you know democratic society uh so i i do think that it 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 did kind of have have that that effect behind the scenes, but but yeah, it, I, I I agree with Gene. The parasocial sort of implications were already there. Uh, I I wanted to um uh, to to return to the question of uh, of of the big businesses that are operating uh, social media uh, uh, companies. When when two or more twelve year olds are exchanging the kind of funny videos that amuse twelve year olds, and it's late at night and uh, they shouldn't be doing this and it's going to give them a bad night's sleep who's making money off of that is it is it is it straight away advertising brian that's 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 aimed at 12 year olds is it um uh, just the ultimate in product placement where everything that you see is in some way uh uh, uh we're, we're urging kids to want to, to own that is it uh instilling brand loyalty so the 12 year old will be doing this for the next 30 years of his life what what is the model at work here? Well, I think, you know, I, that's that's the intent. I mean, I think one of the criminally uncovered, uh, like un, under-investigated and uh, undercovered segments of sort of the the modern uh, world is the ad tech industry. And uh, there's actually a great book that came out last year called Selling the American People by, by, by Lee McGuigan that kind of studies the sort of the run up to today's modern sort of um, ad industry, which sort of sells all of these publishers and platforms on the idea that it can use its technology to um, automate the placement of ideal ads that serve people's tastes. And it, it he, you know, he finds that they've pretty much been making this claim for, you know, 30 or 40 years at least, you know, in various media as we go along. And if you kind of peel back the curtain a little bit, what's actually happening is pretty scattershot, right? Everybody has those humorous stories of get about getting the wrong ads. I mean, people have the scary ones where like, oh, this ad, this thing I bought in Target, I have spent the next seven weeks getting ads for it, um, you know, wherever I look online. Uh, but then you also get completely off target stuff. So the the idea that, you know, an 11 year old is getting served uh, something 
to you know, that's that's so catered to his taste that it's like you know the the he-man toy that he wants or whatever it is uh it, it is is not quite true it's not that you know they're so smart and sinister that they're figuring out exactly what it, it's just you know it's just blunt force they're just serving ads and ads and ads and reams of it in hopes that some of it does connect but that is the pitch that all these companies can do that. They can start to sell things. You know, there are limits as to what companies can explicitly advertise to children. So what they're really started trying to do more than anything, I think, is in these sort of gamified environments um, that uh, that sort of that entice them and encourage the you know the purchasing of of in-game um, you know loots and weapons or what and, and and that that kind of stuff or you know just kind of training them to be consumers of social media as uh, both both of uh, the, the work of, of, of Jean and, and Sherry have shown. So they, you know, it's, I, it, it's really, it's really, that's where the inculcation begins. It's, it's not terribly sophisticated. I think a lot of people have been arguing, I mean, it purports to be the technology is good, but the end result is not, I, we don't need to be worried about the mind readers at, at Facebook is a paraphrase of a Cory Doctorow quote. We gotta be worried just about sort of the enormity of 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 these efforts that they're that they're putting into service they have they still do have such vast stores of capital and they have monopolized these platforms in a lot of cases so it's that blunt force operation they're trying to get kids using computers trying to get them buying stuff in the games they're trying to get them trained on social media and and swiping for the next thing so that they'll be susceptible to advertising when the time comes what you're saying that it's it's uh uh, reports of the phenomenal success of targeting in this in this world are, are exaggerated at this point. Oh yeah, completely. But I mean, it, they're still do, they, it's still a huge business. But the actual success rate of if you actually look between the lines at what's happening, um, you know, it's the the fear isn't that they're going to get us you know hooked on a specific product. The fear is the techniques that they use over and over are having these ad adverse effects, whether or not they're succeeding. Um, and it, they're breeding these uh, the these uh, these habits and, and and behaviors in us that uh, that we may or may yeah. not you know fully be aware of. Um, Sherry Turkle, I'm curious to hear first from uh, from you. There's, I think we live in a time that's been so driven by technology that there's a I think a sort of natural assumption that um, no matter how well the argument against the the power loom of our times uh, might be. Uh, or no matter how well framed the argument against them might be, that ultimately a profitable novel technology uh, succeeds and it it, uh, it it becomes part of our lives. There are things you've, you've been studying our relations with technology for years. Uh, when I first met you, you were interested in Sony's pet dog, uh, a robotic dog, which ceased to exist at some point. It, 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 it's been it, brought it, back as part been, of the new... <laughs> Yeah, as part of the new, uh, with much more intelligence and much more empathic, uh, much more uh, pretend empathy uh, in its uh, in its uh, capacity. So I guess uh, what I think is dramatic now, and where I think that there can be a kind of resistance, is that is that and where perhaps I take a little bit of exception to what Jean is saying, is that we are now being sold on a notion of what empathy is. I mean, when people are, are checking these boxes and taking these tests, they're, they're saying that an object has empathy 
if it makes them feel that it sort of understood them. Now, that's a definition of empathic capacity. And when I interview people about whether or not they feel understood by talking with robots, you know, by talking with programs, mm-hmm. essentially engagement in the program, engagement with the program is, is, is counted as being in an, what, they, what people are calling an empathic c- connection with that program. So what I'm trying to point to and where I do think there can be resistance is to say, that's not what human empathy used to be, is being engaged with something that keeps you hooked and that, that, that said something that you recognize as, you know, getting you involved in the next thing it says. And, and I'm concerned that we degrade down Mm-hmm. Our definition of what empathy is, we, do, we we undermine what our definition of what empathy is um, when we say that machines can have it and machines can give it to us. And the advertising for all of these technologies that will talk to children is this machine will understand your child. Mm-hmm. So you grow up a generation of people who actually think that what they're getting out of a little robot is understanding or care or empathy. And I think that that is a moment when Mm -hmm. people can summon themselves and say, no, no, Mm -hmm. something's happening here that's disturbing. So I continue to worry about empathy in this this regard. Uh, Gene Twange, Twange, last last thoughts here about what our chances are up uh, up against the machine. Well, um, one thing that really does give me hope is how many young adult Gen Z activists are getting involved in this issue. And that's exactly what we need, is the people who grew up with these technologies, whose lives have been affected by them, to speak up and have a voice in this conversation. So I think that's fantastic. Hope to see more of it. A measure of their success is that you can see advertising on television by social media companies demonstrating all of the wonderful things that are accomplished because people have access to them. So clearly, clearly some progress is, is, is being made on the other side. Uh, Brian Merchant, last thoughts? Yeah, you know, I have hope. I think we forget sometimes that we, uh, as a we humans, have been pretty successful in regulating certain technologies before. The onslaught of big tech and this recent age can kind of cloud that out. And, you know, some there's some parties to that, that whole onslaught that would very much like that to be the case. Uh, But, you know, we have we have regulated uh, ways that we watch TV uh, before we have we have regulated chemicals that put holes in the ozone. Uh, I believe that we can find this balance because we also don't want to forget that social media and a lot of these digital tools can do a lot of great things. We, you know, it probably gets overhyped how we talk about, you know, the uprisings in the the Arab Spring and all that. But it's true. It can be a really useful tool for organizing citizen journalism. Look at sort of the window it's provided to the atrocities in Gaza. You know, a lot of people wouldn't have seen any of this stuff or had these tools for organizing or communicating with the powerful without a lot of this technology. So the real challenge is going to be to balance all of this stuff and really sort of go into a new frontier where we can 
re renegotiate the social norms. And I, you know, I'm optimistic. I'm an optimist. I'm a Luddite. I think we can, I think we can do it. Well, thanks to all three of you, uh, Brian Merchant, Sherry Turkle, Jean Twangy, and uh, many thanks as well to Joshua Plout, Ronnie Gibigliano, and Ryan Sutton from American Friends of Rabin Medical Center, which produces Global Connections, and to our technical director, Bobby Grandone. Thank you to our program sponsor, the American Friends of Rabin Medical Center. It's a 501c3, a national charitable organization representing in the United States, Israel's largest hospital, Rabin Medical Center in Petah Tikva, in greater Tel Aviv. The website, is www.afrmc.org. I'm Robert Siegel, and this has been Global Connections, Navigating the New Normal. See you next month. Stay healthy and stay safe.